Hi everyone, welcome to Football 360. This week's show is a slightly different episode. Um, welcome Tony, me and Rob Atkin on the show to discuss uh, the state of English coaching um, in light of some of the changes that the FA have announced as a result of uh, the economic reality of COVID. The funding has been cut uh, and as a result they have scrapped the FA coach mentor system. Um, they've made a number of people redundant. Uh, coach education has been kind of, or coach education roles have been slashed. Uh, and the support that young and developing coaches are likely to get moving forward um, is going to be much, much less. Um, there's going to be much less provision than there has been in the, in the last uh, seven or eight years. So um, we we wanted to talk about the the impact that this may have on on the coach coaching pathways, um, on the coach development opportunities, and also on the players themselves and the state of English football in general as a result both from a grassroots perspective, but also from the professional game perspective. Tony Mee, as many of you will know, has already been on the show. Uh, fantastic, uh, fantastic guy with such great influence, and a fantastic social media presence and someone who has supported and helped so many coaches over the years, both using his social media, um, the power of social media, but also as a, an FA coach mentor himself. He's currently working in Doncaster Rovers Academy and uh, one of the best guys out there to be able to to share his views on uh, on this subject. Rob Atkin is a guy who um, has worked at Newcastle United. Uh, he's worked at other clubs uh, as well as Wall's End Boys Club um, in the Northeast, which is probably one of the most famous kind of talent production uh, factories out there. Um, but more so than that, Rob has done an awful lot of work, uh, working as, a, as, a, as an FA coach mentor, but, but also in, in, in a more informal manner, um, supporting so many coaches and so many schemes and, and, and groups uh, in the North East over the years. So I'm delighted to have the pair of them on the show. Um, fantastic football men, fantastic human beings um, and guys who are going to be able to, to really delve into the, the, the subject and, and cover not just the coach education stuff, but the, the players, the quality of players that are being produced and, and England's prospects for the future. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Football 360 this week. Um, this isn't a one-to-one, it's a one-to-two. Uh, second time I've had, uh, I've had two gentlemen on the, on the call with me. Um, and, uh, and this week I'm delighted to welcome Tony Lee and Rob Atkin. Good evening, gents. Good evening. Good evening to you both. Great to have you both on. Um, we're gonna we're gonna get straight into it and uh, and talk about um, not 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 specifically the the FA uh, the news that's come out of the FA recently, although we'll, we'll cover it. But it, more just the state of coaching, coach education, um, and the development of the right sort of football culture in the UK um, and what what we can do moving forward. So I just want to start with a a bit of a statement from me really, just to say that um, I. I kind of like a lot of people had a lot of questions when the, the DNA project was kind of announced back in 2014. Um, I was like everyone else wanted to have a, you know, pick the bones out of it and, and question certain things. Um, but I think it's become really, really apparent to me over the years, both during my time in the UK and then, then even more so since I've been over here in Spain, that the joined up approach that the the qualities of that of that DNA vision and, and the, the joined up thinking um, and the time and thought that's gone into really improving English players through the age groups um, and seeing that all the way through the system from from the most elite levels down to the grassroots 
that you know football that we, we might all see as you drive past on a Saturday morning. And I think what I what I want to start off by saying is um, we all like to have a moan and stuff, but I, I think there's a lot of good, a lot of good that's happened in, in in English coaching in the last certainly in the last ten years, particularly and, and since the DNA vision came out. And and I see over here um, all of the all of the bad things that people moan about in the in the UK in terms of you know the the coaches um, behaviour on the sideline, the, the the attention and the focus around winning, um, the lack of understanding of how kids learn, um, the respect that that you know everyone needs to demonstrate during the during this process. And I see all of the bad things that we moan about in the UK over here, but amplified. Um, so I, I'm. I, I guess I'm now grateful that I'm, to some extent, a product of the FA's work in the last few years. And I, I just wanted to start with that statement. You two have got many, many years of experience of both coaching, working with, with top players, professional environments, but as also, I think more importantly and, and relevant to this, mentoring coaches and supporting the next generation of coaches and supporting coaches who will go on to no doubt have a major impact in the game. So. You know, first of all, Rob, let's start with you. You know, how do you see things? Do you, do you agree with what I've just said in terms of the, you know, the, the quality that exists? Oh, definitely. I think uh, pre-COVID, uh, we weren't we were in the best place ever. I think regarding coach ed in grassroots, the opportunities for people. Well, there was a lot of quality uh, right across the board is yet to be uh, discussed, but the mentoring program actually did get out there and do a lot of work yeah a lot of and i know tony worked on it because i've met him on some of the, the the training days under the under the radar if i'm honest so five and six years of lots of work under the radar yeah. and really getting really drilling down and work with individuals who then you could see a tangible um improvement in what they were doing and a lot of the people who they're still in the game and they're having a massive impact so a lot of it was really good stuff. Um, COVID's had a big, big cause for concern with everybody. Yeah. That could affect jobs. But I think coaching-wise, and the, the way everything was uh, out there, and you could you could look at stuff, and if you were really keen, build up your own DNA and your own philosophies by the type of stuff that Tony was doing on Twitter, and that was never there years ago. We thought it yeah. was not. So I think we're in a good shape, personally. Great. Tony, what about you? Yeah, I think that sort of I really wanted to get behind the mentor scheme. Um, but I think that my experience of was quite a bit different to Rob's. Um, now, I followed the stuff that Rob uh, and Billy Horn and, and some of the others up in the up in the northeast were doing. And they seemed to get a really positive buy in from the clubs that they were working with. Um, but because I, I had to get out of it after a, a fairly short time, because I went back into the pro game full time and didn't really have the time to commit to it. The sort of 18 months that I had, the two clubs that I was allocated, and, and bearing in mind, they had to apply to be selected to go on this. There was no real joined up thinking in the clubs. So my mission statement, I guess, when I went in was, look, I can... I can do this any way you want. I'm going to try and share with you the England DNA stuff and try and embed that into what you do. Yeah. It's got to be 
you've got to have a one club mentality, not eight different teams, but you all wear the same strip and, and carry the same badge. Um, one of the clubs didn't get back to me after the first meeting. Um, and the other club, I decided to persist with because they were my local village team. Um, and there was maybe half a dozen coaches in there who, who really needed that help and really wanted that help and attended every meeting. Some of the others, they just weren't interested in the in things like equal game time, uh, treating uh, having different starters and different subs every week. Yeah, I, I found it quite frustrating down here, but I have seen other people uh, who've probably left a much stronger legacy on the mentor program uh, than I did down here. Or having said that, one or two of the coaches that I worked with down here who were level one at the time are now pushing towards UA for B. So fair yeah. play to. Yeah, so, so okay, so you've had 18 months in, in that, that coach mentor scheme as a mentor, but in terms of just broadening that a little bit in terms of your experience of the coaches you've worked with in the pro game, how, how, how I mean, can you give us some commentary on what the last 10 years has been like in terms of what you, you just, great examples. It's lovely to hear that you get some level ones through that, that are now working in the pro game with you. I think that's fantastic. And, you know, that hopefully is a, is a commendation of, of the FA's kind of, Plan, but I mean, in general, what are you seeing in terms of the coaches that are coming through now? I mean, certainly from from my perspective, it's great that um, you know I've been in academy football nearly twenty years now, so I can go to play Rotherham, Bradford, Burton, some of these teams, um, and I'm seeing coaches that I took through on their level ones and level twos who are yeah. now out of the game. Now that's that's not for everybody. Not everybody wants to make a living out of the game, and to be fair, not everybody can afford to make a living out of the game at, at our level because it does require a lot of sacrifice. But it, it's great when you see ex-players. Um, I got involved in a discussion this week um, on Twitter about it with um, with the apprentices, you know, the ones that are on the YTS, the old YTS scheme, it's not called that now, obviously. Um, yeah. When those lads actually take the coaching that they have to do seriously, um, rather than it's a it's an encumbrance when they're doing it. Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Um, they've, they've got two years and part of their education package is to become a level two coach. And then you sometimes see them months down the line. We didn't take it seriously, but actually they now realise that they want to go working for a private company or they want to get into academy coaching. Yeah. And they wish they'd taken it a little bit more seriously. So... It's good to see that we've got a couple of kids um, now within our academy who've done that, who've gone through that process. Yeah. Um, I think that more people do take it more seriously now and, and they do look at it as as a potential career opportunity sooner rather than later in a lot of cases. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I mean, I, I, if, I, if I'd have been asked to do it as part of something else, first of all, it's not your primary focus anyway, so you ain't going to be that... That you know, it's going to be a top a, a, a tick box exercise, isn't it? But also, I probably didn't have the maturity to do and to appreciate the topic, you know, to guide other people at, at a young age like they, they are doing it. But it's fantastic that you know now, now you've got them coming through, and, and perhaps you know, certainly over the last few years, I think that there's so many more young coaches now, you know, sub 25, and to be honest, you know. Probably, I'd say half and half. Half of them, I think, come through and are probably a little bit too green to be doing some of the things they're doing, just my opinion. 
But by the same token, I've seen some young coaches come through who might have might have been a bit green, but have really kicked on into fantastic coaches and influences. So, so, so Rob, in terms of um, the players that you're that you, you know you're seeing in the northeast, particularly, it's a better football. You know, we talk about you know Peter Beardsley and you know Wolves End Boys Club and and you know all that fantastic legacy and stuff. But I mean, it, it, are you seeing the impact? You know, from the DNA, from the coach mentoring system, are you seeing it? You know, the, the impact on the actual quality of the players coming through in the northeast. Um, I think there's always that number of players because you've only got three professional clubs. Yeah. So that leaves a lot of players who, even if they both they all took their three their full quarter into the three clubs, there'd still be a lot of talent out there. And Tony will, will know this because Tony's hosted teams that have come down uh, players who aren't in an academy because there just isn't the space. And then you look at 30 pro clubs in the northwest where a lot of these kids up here would be in at least Rochdale Centre of Excellence. They'd still have to buy a kit and travel by car. But I yeah. think there's this, um, this enthusiasm. Lately, it's been more from the parents. The kids get into football a lot earlier. And it's, it's what they do. But it's actually becoming, for want of a better word, more of a middle class sport, you know. So you need the, the yeah. big boots. You need a parent to drive you there and stuff like that. Um, I think the talent, there's there's talent there, but all of those, the talent you've mentioned there all came from industrial areas, which we don't yeah. know. So same as Middlesbrough or Yorkshire or Merseyside or Glasgow, those those places aren't there anymore. So the kids find other things to do, but yeah. I think. Into academies, um, as Tony's alluded to, need to be told a bit more truth. That chances are you might get a scholarship, chances are less you may get a pro course. So let's try and get you a coaching badge. Now, out of the clubs that used to come together via the PFA, there was Sunderland, Newcastle, and Carlisle, so they'd be about 30 40 players. Now, out of that one prelim back in the DL level, too. You could count on one hand lads who took it seriously and went on. Right. Got a living in, in football because they still have this dream, you see. Even this was the day before they were getting released. So I think there's a lot more can be done. It's about who's mentoring them, who's driving them. So at Newcastle, the, the lads would take uh, level one, level two, but they'd also be asked to turn up on a night time and work in the academy and just shadow somebody and help somebody because you get a badge it's great but yeah. if you don't get on the grass and get put in that uh, come out your comfort zone and deal with young kids it's a bit pointless you know so yeah if there's lots of there's lots of different ways and areas that people can be encouraged to take things on but it's who's mentoring them so at newcastle united we had a guy called alan Irvin who was West Ham I've just seen and he took an interest in the kids um, and we've had other people at other clubs who they don't bother and Tony will say you've got to get to know these people the yeah. psychology is massive you know yeah I mean there's there's, there's a lot because you, you've talked about you both talked a little bit about the younger players who do their coaching badges who have it as a plan B or C or D or whatever and um, we've got the parents and I think the parents are a massive Part of the coaching community with a, a huge, in fact, they're very vociferous when I when I think about it because when you consider the people that you interact with on on Twitter, Tony, and obviously you've influenced so many people on there, 
there's got to be 60, 70% of the people who follow you have got to be parent, football parents who are, who are coaches. Yeah, I think I think that, that that's the case because in a lot of cases, and I used to find this a lot when I delivered level ones and level twos, when you asked the question, why have you got into coaching? It was because there was nobody there to take their team on. Yeah. Whether they whether they then develop a love of coaching or they just want to coach their boys team. I know a lot of parents who've said, well, I'll coach him till he gets to under 16 and then that's me done. Yeah. And actually, you still find 10, 15, 20 years later, they've either gone back into it or they've stayed in it because yeah. they it so much. Um, and I think that there is a lot more support out there now. And what, actually, one of the reasons that I went on Twitter was because um, when I was a, when I first got my coaching badges, there was there was very little support. There was a there was an FA organisation called the FA Coaches Association, um, but it was very hit and miss. They didn't organise much in the way of CPD. They put a magazine out, but you know there's no substitute like Rob's already alluded to for seeing good coaches put on good sessions. So I just when I when I got onto Twitter, one of the things that I wanted to do was share some of the stuff that I'd accumulated over the years. Yeah. Like I say, I mean, I'm, we're not talking thousands of years ago. This was, uh, when, 98, I think I did my UA for a conversion course. And I just couldn't find anything that was going to help me. I had, yeah. to rely on, I had to rely on my experience of other coaches, good or bad. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people, I guess, of my age who now coach had that same experience. Because there wasn't county coaches associations, there wasn't partnership with clubs. Well, this is the thing. I mean, it, it, you two have to correct me, and you know, and, and apologies for pointing it out, but you're both a little bit older than me, a little bit. And uh, if, I, from my my understanding, I guess, of the last thirty or forty years, is Charles Hughes, Alan Wade, those kind of guys were the reference points in, uh, let's say, seventies and eighties. Then there might have been a void for a period of time when coaching didn't really have a focal point, you know, other than the, 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 what you see in the, in, the, in the public eye in the media in terms of the, the, the managers, Alex Ferguson as an example. And then I think this last 10 years has been a golden, a golden 10 years in many respects, because if you consider what the FA has done with the DNA side of things, when you consider the investment that's gone into it with the, with the amount of money that's gone into football, it has trickled down, but regardless of what people say, it has trickled down into coach education, full-time jobs for mentors, you know, jobs for mentors, jobs for, uh, you know, area support type staff at the FA. Um, and the other thing is social media. If you if you put, you know, social media has had a massive influence on me as a coach, huge influence. In fact, I'd say more than, you know, anything. If, if I had to pick one thing up, I'd actually say social media. And that's not to say that I, I take everything there and copy and paste and what have you, but you know, the connections. I mean, I wouldn't know you two if it wasn't for social media. Not, 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 oh, <laughs> it's got a lot to answer for. But I think, you know, so that's the way I, I guess I see it. I mean, you know, the, the, the risk, I guess, now with a commentary on the situation at the moment is that there might be a void coming, coming ahead of us because of COVID, because of taking a bump after what has been a fantastic, you know, 10 years, I guess, for for coaches, is, do, do you do you both agree with that? Does that make sense? I mean, uh, how, you know, if you go back, Rob, back to the sort of you know the Charlie Hughes type stuff, how how do you how do you view that? The the 
the initial call to um, he decided to, to write a book and it was on analysis. But yeah. unfortunately, people were taking it as the holy grail. And yeah. it's a book and to be fair, not much of the analysis has changed. Most goals are scored one touch and less than five passes. But then you see people copying the likes of Wimbledon and Sheffield Wednesday and Cambridge at the time in Watford. But they're playing for the mortgages. Yeah. You know? So like we had a discussion that week. So when you go to somewhere like Sheffield Wednesday where the, the ball never left the floor and they play like a bloody five-a-side team, I learned so much from that having come through the FA's um, route where it was direct play, get it up the big fellow up front as soon as possible. Now that's actually coming back round, but with a little bit more culture with Bayern Munich and Liverpool. So everything yeah. goes in a circle. So I think this is where you have to look at yourself and decide what you want to be and be your own person. Devise your own philosophy, devise your own DNA, and it probably comes from how you've played. So as a youth player, I pretend to be Glenn Hoddle in pinging balls everywhere. Then I got into senior football and I just ran around kicking everybody because you had to survive. But you, you start to think about stuff and, and then the stuff Tony talks about and people are wanting quick fixes and watch Monday night football and a Man City play like this and they're running the under 10s. And you go, well, hang on here. Yeah. Let's get your priorities in place and why you're there and what you're trying to do. And I think it's about learning about yourself. Going back to the original coach educator, there's a guy called Jack Detchen. I don't know if you've heard of him, um, Tony, but he, he would drive up from Wakefield to Benwell, no social media, no mobile phones, and show everybody Maradona spin and show shooting sessions. So it was all new, and it was all new to us because we were coming to the end of our playing career. So it was all this whole new, it was like rediscovering America, uh, if you like, and now we're looking back. And now we've got so much to look at, but we have to pick the bones out. And we have to take out what's relevant to us and try and be a leader, not just a follower. Oh, well, Man City are playing with a back three or whatever. Be yourself and, and yeah. work as you've got. Uh, and as Tony alludes to now, the sports psychology, when we're talking about CPD, find your own CPD. And it might be nothing to do with football, but yeah. it'll be you, you, you treat people, which you didn't learn on the courses. You got shot in front of everybody and to see if you would bounce back and if you bounce back yeah you were probably going to get your, your badge you know but uh, things have changed society's changed and it's sometimes for the better but we have to carry on what we know through our enthusiasm uh, and just try and steer these grassroots coaches who are mostly stars um, my big job there was to keep them in the game and say okay you've been with your son from under seven you're now under 14 you're pulling your hair out what was the best year that you liked? Or oh, under eight? Well, specialise in that. Brilliant, brilliant. Yeah, yeah kids, play for the under 14s because they'll just turn on you as a parent anyway. Yeah. <laughs> they don't need the coach. And I yeah. had the same. was a very good player. He was in the centre and Chef Wed, but I hated coaching him. And if I could, I would try and keep out of his way because it's a different totally different environment yeah i love that um just just on when you're talking about creating your own philosophy yeah. it's probably about the identity and understanding where you're most comfortable let's like say working foundation phase development phase professional senior whatever but where do you think the framework and the consistency because what what i like and I, you know I, i'm going to go on about it a lot on this call because i feel really strongly about it is 
the consistency. I don't like the, that term, the golden thread, but it's really important that there's some consistency in practice, in understanding, in standards, in you know, just job preparation, for example. And I think if there's consistency in a club, it's only alluded to it before, with a grassroots club, and then, and, and let's say, a county or an association or a professional, you know, let's say the EPPP in the Premier League, if, you, if organisations have some consistency about them, there's room to, to, to create your own identity. But that framework brings everyone up, in my opinion. But so where do you see that kind of stopping and the individuality starting? Well, with a lot of clubs within Northumberland and in Durham with Billy as well, you've got your elite clubs. I'll not mention them. You've got your elite clubs, and that's okay. That's yep. their identity. And you've got your community clubs where there's 40 teams who are basically they've got so many teams you just wonder why they exist because nobody talks each other but it brings a lot of finance in to pay the bills for the training uh, facilities and stuff like that so in the 40 team club my job is to say look you need to get a bit more of an idea of where your players fit and if you've got a recreation player they don't have a team but don't even train you don't need to have a development when it's slightly smaller kids or whatever who are trying to strive and you have your performance because this club, I'm not mentioning the name, has 40 odd teams and they were losing all the best players to a club five miles up the road because they weren't promoting their players into the group with the better players and the, the training was boring, it was run by your dad who turned up and you know, balls were half blown up and stuff like that. So yeah. being, being somebody who's leading the club and a bit what Tony was talking about before, I never had any problems going to any, any clubs up here because I know most people, but I'd go and find out who had the power and I'd basically spend time with them. And if it was in this whole club that I ended up working with one person, then I worked with that one person. I didn't have a problem with that. Um, but again, it's, it's about giving people the, the knowledge and the confidence that we've now got, but it's taken us 30, 40, 25 years, whatever, to say, yeah. look, be your own person. Don't copy people and just, and that was one of the things with FA coaching too and he's talking about it. We used to be clones of Mickey Wadsworth, Martin Hunter, but then you come away and go, actually, it takes a while, but you become your own person and yeah. have skills and, and, you know, ideas on why you're there, I suppose. Yeah. I don't oh, know what you Yeah, go on, Tony, what do you think? Yeah, it's that, it's, it's that driving test analogy that that people use a lot when they talk about um about coaching yeah. you know when you when you go on your driving test you're taking your driving lessons your hands are at 10 to 2 you shuffle the wheel around uh, the minute you pass the test you're spinning the wheel like a boy racer um, and i think that coaching coaching was a little bit like that um when i was in coach education but you know this i think i do believe there's still a place to stop stand still because they're just words that it's just a way of controlling the session but now um when some people hear that they go mental it's like they think it's been banned that it that it's it's almost it's tantamount to abuse well you know i could do that or i could have a whistle in my mouth or i could shout relax but all the players know you know that's that's my way of doing it yeah. and you, you get away from that driving test mentality and as long as it's safe you know we all spin the wheel every now and again and so why not spin it while you're coaching? Because, like Rob said, 
you'll develop, you have to develop your own personality because if you don't, you won't last. The kids will find you out or the parents will find you out or your employers will find you out, whether that's a club or the FA or whether you're in a, a, a paid environment. You, yeah. You've got to, the bottom line is for us, um, and I, I, I've mentioned this a, a couple of times on, on other podcasts or when I've done my Facebook Live stuff, you're there for the players. You're not there for you. If you're there as a mentor, you're there for the coaches, but they're there for the players. So ultimately, you've got to have that connection. It's it's about, a, it's a people thing. Yeah. It's not a football thing at all. It's a people thing. You have to connect with them. You've got to help them to connect with their players. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that makes massive sense. I mean, I, I really like the, you know, the driving test and, and and then the, you know your journey as a driver and, and spinning the wheel and like that analogy because it's so true and that like I say that bit of individuality or whatever if you don't and you you are constantly driving at ten to two no one's going to buy into you because what you just said there about your personality connecting with people is it, that's how you connect is by by being different by communicating in a different way by having a little bit of whatever it is a bit of arsehole about you or being a, you know for for young kids being a, a real animator who's really lively and you know, yeah, you've, you've definitely got to do that. That's, it's a really good analogy, really good analogy. So, I mean, I want to talk specifically about, about the players that we're producing a little bit now. We'll come back on the coaching in a bit, I suspect. I mean, how do you see, you know, Rob, Rob what's your view on the type of players that England, at, at the elite level, at the age group level, through, you know, 16, 17, 18, or 19s, 21s, and into the senior side, how, how do, do you think the players are fit to potentially win World Cups. I didn't like the DNA that the FA setting out and saying we have to win the World Cup in 2022 in Qatar. I, yeah. I don't think there's any connection in my yeah. opinion whatsoever. I just don't see that as it can be a byproduct, but for me to bring everyone up would be better than to, for England to the difference between winning the semi final on penalties and going through and, and winning, winning the World Cup. Yeah. That's just yeah. my, my view, but go on. I think. I to make a statement like that, we need to win this by 2020. Um, the people that make those statements tend not to be around when that time comes. Yeah. They themselves in the job. And I think it takes something horrendous, uh, which we've faced in the past, like didn't qualify for certain World Cups and this, that and the other. Uh, and I was over in Germany, ooh, 2006, me and Neil Winston went over. And it was in Dortmund. World Cup was just about to start and staying with Bates there and we met the guy in the soccer school that had been built by World Cup money and we talked about we just had a complete overhaul because the German FA have got lots more clout. They, they could have had a FA Premier, uh, Premier League with money coming in but they didn't want it because they knew it would affect the national team and they got out and they worked right across the country really got into grassroots clubs, recently been over to Belgium, they get into grassroots clubs, I think that's something that doesn't happen here, the elite side that you're talking about, yeah we've got some very good players, very good athletes, but I might be sound like an old fart here, but there's not many people get my arse off my seat, there's not a Gaston or a Waddle or a Giggs yep. uh, or a Hoddle, I just see a lot of very functional stuff, um, Jamie Vardy can score hat-tricks against Man City. Yeah, he's not in the England squad, and there'll be reasons for that. So I think the idea of 
what we're producing in education, you've done a lot on athleticism is massive, and mini soccer when it first came out, there were drag kicking and screaming or fumbling to actually take that on. Yeah. Ryan Sterling's, Sterling's probably one of the first that have come through the mini soccer age. Going further down the age band, I just see too much restriction on kids. And it comes again, and Tony's the same as me. We'll have played out with my mates, and one week pretend to be Bobby Charlton, the next week pretend to be Ray Clements and go and go. So there's not this freedom. Now, yeah. at a time at a top club, and again, you've mentioned it, but I won't. Um, and the under nines, under eights, under sevens coaches, it's just about winning. And when you're trying to say, well, that kid needs to go past somebody, getting it off the goalkeeper, oh, I don't want that, just get the goalkeeper to kick it up front. And they evaluate their whole being and their whole team as if they won. Yeah. If they don't win, they replace the players they've got. The yeah. coaches have done uh, to the extent it should be. Um, academies, P. They're there, but really, to get into a Premier League team through a Premier League academy, wow, you've got to be doing some. And if you do, it's probably because they've bought you in further down the lane. I look at the likes of Tony and clubs, and they've got to try and produce players. Yeah. They've got a good chance and being honest to the kids. And I would say to a parent, and we've said over years, get away to Cambridge, because if you're any good, you'll get the first team quicker. If you're not, you'll get found out. And I think that's just being... Again, a bit more honest and harsh, if you like, to some of these players. Yeah. Uh, so, so you you would send you would send a kid, or you would tell a, a parents, you might be better off sending them to a League One, yeah, you know, yeah. a Cat Two, Cat Three academy, rather than being on the fringe of a Cat One. And I find quite a pleasant at Newcastle, and I would get parents, oh, we're really worried you might not get a scholarship. I says, well, if he doesn't, somebody else will take him on because he just had five years quality coaching in a nice environment. So look at that. And there's kids there now who are playing with the under-23s. They won't get in the first team. Yeah. The, the supporters want names on shirts. So go and have a go. There's a lad played for Tony's club. Uh, was it Newcastle United? And he's had a fantastic career. Doncaster. Uh, what's his name Coppinger. again? Is it Coppinger. Coppinger, yes. And he came through a group uh, with Aaron Hughes and all them. And I think that's... That's a fantastic success for a kid. Couldn't agree more. Marvellous career. Marvellous example as well. And I'm sure Tony better tell us more. Yeah, I mean, just on Cops, it is an example. And I think that he said it himself, um, where in that group that he was in at Newcastle at the time, there was going to be no pathway for him and that's something that we talk about quite a lot at, at the club is is there a pathway for the for the stronger players um, to come through to, to get into the 18s to progress to the 23s um, and then to get on on the pitch with the first team um, and sometimes players do need to step back and and unfortunately a lot of the time it's the parents that, that get in the way of that backward step because there's no money in it. There's no glory in it. Um, but actually, what you need to be doing is playing football. Nobody's going to start with getting splinters in your backside. So you've got to get out and play. Um, going back to the, the, the original part of your question there, Kev, about skillful players. 
I think, and I, I've, I've always thought that we've got lots and lots of skillful players, and and I, and I don't have any, um, I, I don't have any sort of truck with the ones that say, oh, Dutch kids are more skillful or Spanish kids are more skillful. We've got equally skillful players. Those um, those age group teams from okay, it's two years ago now. I think the 17s, 19s, and 20s who won the Europeans and the Worlds all within six or eight months of each other were full of skillful players, and and only now are they starting to get to the right level, the right level, the level that you would expect them to be at. Yeah. So Bodens, your Sancho's, um, you look now at. Uh, Rashford and, and Mason Greenwood. These are really talented, skillful players. Yeah. But unfortunately, the lower down the pyramid you go, I guess, the less, not the, not the less chance, but if you're at Man United or Chelsea, they can give you that extra two, three, four, maybe even five years of, of developmental time. If you're at a, a category three or category four, um, club in terms of academy setup, you've got to be much closer to the first team at 18. No matter how skillful you are, yeah, because you can't carry it for another two or three years. Yeah, so there's a, there's a there's a story about Lingard at Man United that they played Lingard down, they hung on to him and hung on to him, and eventually he's got the recognition that they felt that he was worthy of. But I carry that player for four or five years in your development group. And bearing in mind, he's not 175 quid a week anymore. So where are important, tougher decisions have to be made. And and you mentioned, um, you know, players have got to be functional. Well, yeah, unfortunately, at, at, a, at a League One or a League Two club, they're not bothered whether you can keep the ball up in the air a hundred times. What they are bothered about is they're prepared to work your nuts off are you prepared to run around the pitch when we need you to run around the pitch? And if you've got a little bit of extra talent, skill, pace, goal-scoring ability, I'll take that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So on this one, I mean, first of all, a couple of things I wanted to say on, on what you both said. Rob, if, if you'd have asked me four years ago, I'd have given the same answer as you in terms of players. They don't excite me, they don't get, get me up. What I, what I hated, my pet hate at the time, and it was only based on my experience was that we had lots of players who wanted to play somewhere in the middle of the park. They might could give themselves numbers, a four or a six or, an, or a ten. And, and this is where I play. Not not a wide player who takes on on individuals, not a centre half who wants to stop, who wants to who wants to block, who wants to who lives for defending in clean sheets. Not a, not an attacker who would pull the trigger when he had half a yard. You know, when it, it was it was all, you know, well, I play CDM and I, and, I, and I can open my body and shift the ball side to side all day long. And isn't that what real footballers do? Well, no, it wasn't. But the, the flip side to that is I think and I suspect that it's partly down to the likes of maybe, you know, Pete Sturgis. I think that's starting to come through now. But but it's all linked to the DNA, the, the quality, the technical quality and what you what you um, prioritise at a younger age in terms of the love of the ball, in terms of the imagination, in terms of the playfulness. I do think that we're starting to see those players come through. We, I mean, Foden is probably the best example. I mean, he, for me, he's mm -hmm. top 10 midfielder in the world already. Mm -hmm. 
just for me, and that's all based on he can twist, he can turn his balance, he can go past people, he can pick a pass, he can score goals, he can arrive late. In the, but I mean, he can, he, but he's such, he, with the ball, he is just an unbelievable talent. And I think Hudson Adoy and people like that, you know, that, that we have got some players that do get me excited, but it's only the last two or three years. And I think we'll maybe only see the real fruits of that labour in another year or two's time. That's just my gut feel. Because I do think, as Tony says, we've got the best players in the world. It'll be yeah. as good a players as any other country has got in terms of raw, raw material. And they, they must be really strong personalities or they've got coaches who really get into their heads and give them freedom. Yeah. I've seen it in the academies. Kids who are scared to try things. Kids who are not brave. They're, they're just going to do... They're going to hate. Some of them just go and hate. Yeah. They're not but they don't see that people are going, hang on, well, I'm watching you, and you just keep, you know what I mean? You want somebody who's going to have a real go. And I mean, you'll get every now and then, this kid stepped up to train with the Castle first team, with Rafa. This kid stepped up and he's been trained. But they'll step up and they'll get the ball and they'll pass it to somebody else. They'll get the ball and they'll pass it to somebody else. If that was Gaza, he'd be trying to chip the goalkeeper from yeah. And I yeah. think that, that, take a straight jacket on these people. And you could put 20 of them on the pitch and it all look the same. Long staff got in because of injuries and this, that, and the other. And he gets the ball and he has the audacity to take a shot against Man United because he's that type of kid. And he'll, he'll put all his eggs in one basket, what have you. That, that just doesn't seem to happen. And, I, and I've seen people coming in and we've signed this player and they will just will take the one we just got rid of. And I think. Yeah. Maybe it is. It's 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 the the world's changed and what have you. And it's it's about staying in there and earning the money and what have you. But what what I'm trying to say is that I think that you just want a little bit of somebody who will go and have a real go. Well, well we we suppress the character now, right? The, the world suppresses the characters of young professional footballers, doesn't it? Gaza wouldn't survive today. No, he wouldn't no. survive with with the media. He'd be hounded out. He'd be chastised. He'd be isolated, and and he wouldn't he wouldn't have progressed like he did. And you know, having a love and nurturing the individuality that people like that and characters like that, warts and all, for for, for better or for worse, is a skill, an art, and an elite process in itself. That you know, it doesn't it feels to me like we we haven't quite got right. And I think on what I was what, just to finish off what I said before as well about the players getting me off my seat at the moment and me really feeling like England's got a great crop of talent with the ball is that what disappoints me particularly as an old horrible centre-half is that just as that gets better the fundamentals at the other end of the pitch or, 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 or at moments in the game when you need to have those fundamentals about doing the ugly thing and managing a game you know defending working hard rolling your sleeves up all these things what the quality might go but it always seems to kind of tip like that instead, instead of everything going up and just you know, and just at least maintaining that desire and that that quality of kind of professionalism about their habits in everything they do in the game. They might drop off, but there's more technical quality. So that's the frustration for me. I think the other thing I wanted to say, guys, is that Ben White for me is, I think, the prototype for what we were talking about there, Tony, in terms of a lone player. So if you can replicate what Ben White's had who's clearly a Premier League level player, but they needed to send him to Newport. 
and then they needed to send him to Peterborough, and then they needed to send him to Leeds, and he's worked his way through a Newport. Rodney Parade is not a ground for, for, for fancy football. He's, I mean, Newcastle will find that out tonight, I suspect, even without any fans. Um, I mean, they've had a couple of good FA Cup ones in recent years, haven't they? But to play at Newport for a whole season in League Two and then do what he did at Peterborough, then do what he did with last year, which was phenomenal. And I suspect he's just going to take the Premier League football with Brighton in a similar fashion as he did at Leeds. So if you could take the equivalent of a League Two Ben White and send him down to the Conference North and send him to Fly Spartans or wherever, and then maybe send him on to Gateshead and then... He might be the finishing. He might end up with James Coppinger in League One, being the best, you know, and having a career to be super proud of, like Coppinger, I'm sure is, because he's had an unbelievable career. I think the on, the only problem I have with when I was like, it's, not, it's nothing to do with me because they're not really my age group. But the thing that I find is that you mentioned non-league North will come in and and, and they'll ask for um, they'll ask for. First year pros, second year pros, uh, second year whiteys who are, who are a little bit older. They'll, yeah. they'll take them on loan and then they stick them on the bench because yeah. their mates are on 50 quid a week or 75 quid a week. And that frustrates me because if I think that this might, I might come across the wrong way here, but I don't really care. If you come into a pro club and ask for their players to come to your club online, you've got to do is play them yeah um and i know that that's happening a little bit with a couple of lads that we've got out, out on loan at the minute one at redditch uh and one at gainsborough those boys are, are, are getting game time and and don't get me wrong i don't think that you should i don't think you automatically get, get game time of course, of course. You play but to take kids on loan almost just to forge a relationship between the club and then yeah. not play them i think that that's a little bit disrespectful if you came to ask me later that season or the following season and you've taken a player and then not played him, nobody but nobody gains from that. I'd be less I'd be less likely to, to deal with you. And I guess when I look at what's happening with our first team now, where at the minute we you know, necessity is we've had a, a lot of lone players last year, a lot of lone players this year. They're seeing um they're seeing our our manager put these players in, get regular games, do well. Uh, and now they've gone back. There was one played last night in the was it in the Premier League or the Cup for Villa, who we had on loan last year. Um, we had Ben Sheaf from Arsenal last year, who's now uh, at Coventry this year. Um, and Arsenal have played to our club. So you, you can see how the loan system works. And hopefully those players who have come to us and played in our first team and got that experience will now go on either another loan at a higher level or they'll start playing you know for their clubs yeah. but at the same time I still think that there's English players who if you stuck an O or an itch on the end of their name <laughs> would get a game a, a bit yeah. quicker you might be right, pal. You might well be right. I think, yeah, look, on, on the lone one, absolutely. You know, you've got, you've got to pick the people. You know, if I'm going to send my son off to be taught a musical instrument, I want to know a little bit about the guy's character or the lady's character. I want to understand how they treat other kids before us. I'm not, you know, and, and the same applies there. Like you say, if kid goes there and he, he's just sat watching, of course, you can tell, tell the kid, you know, you've got to try and learn from every experience, a different dressing room and what have you. But the reality is, as a pro club, 
you wanted to get some get some experience and, and yeah, hundred percent I get it. But but I think like I say the thing with, with use Ben White as an example, you know, I think he's a perfect example. You know, he they've added those horrible bits to his game in that experience. He's had a yeah, Harry Kane had the same. Harry Kane was how many loan spells did he have before? And he was a quite a late developer, really, in terms of, you know, it certainly wasn't a Rashford or a Rooney that was, you know, really doing it in the Premier League at the age of 18, 19, 20s. He was probably mm-hmm. 22 before I think he, he became the force he was. So, OK, listen, let's let's move on a little bit. We're, I knew this was this would potentially be a long one, um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, we, haven't, we haven't even got halfway through. Uh, to what, what I wanted to cover. Um, let's talk just quickly about futsal. Um, I, I, I haven't. This isn't, isn't something that I've talked about very much with either of you. Maybe Tony just a little bit. But I mean, what, what's your view on futsal and the relationship with football? And you know, it's it's. I, I get everyone has a as a view. If you're a futsal person, you see it in, as a sport in its own right. You're going to have a, a passionate defence of the sport itself. I I see it more from a from a tool to help develop your football. Just my view. Um. My generation, we played five a side indoors, and it was probably in addition to what we already did 11 a side. Yeah. And you were allowed to smash people into the walls, and you played with a fluffy ball that you couldn't control, you couldn't go in the box. But it Rob, was probably- we've got an image of you when you were younger as a real monster, you know that, Rob? Oh, I, I've got no idea. And uh, that I would not go five a side, kept out of the way. So. <laughs> it was it was a fitness thing. It was another night training, and it was a social thing. And the yeah. leagues massive, so many leagues, unbelievable. Now, for me, futsal, and when I've mentored a club and they've got indoor facilities, I'll say you need to use a touch line. I need to get a heavier ball, i.e., a futsal ball, because what you're doing is blowing your size four, your size three up full pelt, and playing on a hard floor. Well, they're going, they're not going to be playing that on Sunday, and yeah. Hitting the board on the pitch on a Sunday to play a one-two, which you used to do in five-a-side. So that that for me was brilliant, and I think um, again it's an addition. It's a technical game, but I found it was trying to move off, and that's okay. I've got no truck with that. It's becoming its own sport in itself, and the crossover between futsal and eleven-a-side football started to be totally different, and I and I've. We've talked about the FA and we've talked about new initiatives and it just seemed to be another number crunching thing to get a coaching badge. You now get a level three in futsal, which originally futsal was get on the court, there's the lanes, there's a heavy ball, get on with it. Now, I don't see how much coaching needs to go into that. (laughs) I'm sorry, but I don't. So why they would then start to devise all of these coaching badges to go with that? I mean, I think, I think just on that, I mean, the, the part of the answer to that is that obviously it's a more developed sport over here. And I can tell you just from my experience of my lad playing futsal over here, that there is, yeah, it's a different process. I mean, you know, it's, it's a, probably a combination of basketball, handball, football, in terms of the movements and the more organised set-piece type structures and, the, you know, the way that they, they have a very kind of, a mechanical almost approach sometimes to to training and and working on particular patterns and movements and um yeah so i think i do recognize that there's a, there's it's as a, well, its own right that there is you know you could probably work through the through the levels 
would be a brave association to see a right, and I would I would go with this. Yeah. In December through to end of February, we're playing indoor football. Yeah. It just wasn't a facility. Uh, the leagues up here thought about it. There wasn't a facilities. There wasn't a spectator uh, areas. So it was a, it was a non-starter. Yeah. So foot things, and I know the Premier League academies. Oh, we're playing futsal this week, and it off Holland playing some astroturf somewhere. Well, I'm sorry, but <laughs> you're just pretending. You know what I mean? So it's it's like everything else. It's like somebody will say, oh well, uh, Messi played futsal, Ronaldo played futsal. Yeah. And they played lots of other things. They probably played tennis. But you have to take that wider picture. And the more that people are playing, as we've said, uh, it can only benefit them as long as you haven't got overplay. And, and I think, again, it puts them in a situation where they have to depend on their techniques. And when yeah. I was watching games, and there was a team put together, it was five centre-halves, and they got walloped because by the time the message went from their head to their toes, they'd lost the ball. And I thought... <laughs> Yeah, you've just described me. <laughs> me trying to play futsal over here, goodness me. It's a write-off. Within 20 weeks, those players had improved. Yeah. Well, they improved themselves. It wasn't about coaching. It was you need to move quickly and do things, you know, look to play that ball forward and join yeah. stuff like that. But now yeah. I think... I think, but, but you, think it's a, you think it's a good tool for football and you and, and you think that, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not wanting to put words in your mouth, but... It's it's of benefit to the FA to have an interest in futsal. Yeah, yeah, and I think schools could do it indoors. It's it's it gets people active. Yeah. That's what out. And we talk about trying to replace street football. It's probably been the nearest thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd agree. I'd agree. Absolutely. Tony, I think that I can see the benefits of it. I did when they started introducing the the futsal coaching courses. I went on. I think the, the introductory one and the level one. Um, for me, this I think there's probably less transfer than a lot of people give it credit for because they, they talk about first touch. Well, the first touch is better because the ball is heavier and it doesn't bounce off your foot so much. Yeah. So I, I, I would rather consider it as a sport in its own right. Um, I remember I was delivering a level two up at um, Sheffield Hallam university sports park one time and there was this competition on the on the pitch next to ours that had been advertised as a futsal competition well it was outdoors it was on astroturf and they didn't have futsal balls so how was it futsal yeah that's doing a disservice isn't it yeah and i think there's i think that there has been a lot of that you know they'll say oh well just use the heavier ball outdoors it, it doesn't it doesn't roll the same it doesn't bounce the same so i i just think that one, there's not as much transfer as people give it credit for. It's easier to control a ball that's heavier because it doesn't run away from you. It doesn't bounce off you. Yeah. I, I do think there's a lot of, um, not falsehoods, but a lot of misconceptions about how the two, um, how futsal transfers over into, into the 11-a-side game. Yeah. yeah. What Rob described with, with five-a-side and, and the old, massive tennis balls and bouncing it off the wall and all the rest of it was probably closer to football than futsal is. Yeah. And, and, uh, it's hardly played anymore, even as a recreational sport. Yeah. Yeah. It's re really good points. Really good from the pair of you. I mean, I, I think what, what I would, what I would add is I think it's the movements at a certain time in a young player's development as a footballer 
will can, can be improved. So the speed and the dynamism, the balance and the coordination, you know, the ABC stuff, combined with having a ball in, in the vicinity, I think that's where the big benefit is for me. And I mean, you know, looking at it from a purely selfish point of view in terms of my lads, that's, I think, what will help him, um, you know, if he chooses to be to, to do more football than futsal in the future. And that, that's what I think will bring to him. But really good points there, really good points. OK, um, go, go on, sorry. I'm sure that those that are, are involved in futsal will absolutely hate us for what we've just said. Well, no, no I, I, I actually think you've just, you, the point that you've just made, Tony, about about the, the transfer, you know, the, 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 the fact that there isn't as much transferable uh, element of a, of a transferable element as you, or, or as much of a lot of a similarity or whatever, I think they might say you're probably right because I, I feel like I'm, my, my view, using it as a development tool for football is what offends people who really love futsal because they see it as a, a sport in its own right. And I respect that massively because I have friends here who are, you know, top, top futsal people and that it's, I mean, it's a wonderful sport to watch. Absolutely. I mean, brilliant entertainment. I, you know, really, I, I, you know, I could talk all night about it. I think it's a wonderful sport to watch and I was gobsmacked because as a big old horrible centre-half who used to rod it and, you know, ne never really liked, you know, I couldn't see myself enjoying playing it. I therefore thought I probably wouldn't necessarily enjoy watching it, but I couldn't, couldn't have been further from the truth. But yeah, I, I'm not sure. I think your point there actually might might be appreciated by some people in futsal. We'll see. See what the, see what the feedback is, pal. See how many follows, follows you lose from the futsal community. <laughs> I think, I think the point that we're all going to, I think it's just the accessibility of it. They just yeah. need to take hidden, and there might be a league there, but it's full. And I think if it was to add it in as part of, then let's go, let's really enjoy it, you know? Well, well the, other, the other thing is, and, and you alluded to it a little bit because of the winter schedule, how much football is lost these days? Oh. You know, because of health and safety or whatever, you know, 20 years ago, Half the games that get called off would have been played on a quagmire, admittedly, maybe not helping anyone, but they'd still be out there playing the, the sport they love. So, you, you know, everyone's got to think about providing a facility for, for kids to continue to play through what are probably going to get, you know, more extended periods of bad weather if the climate kind of, you know, differences over the last few years or anything to go by. When I played in, when I played in Germany, they, they had a two-month shutdown over... I think it was January and February, and they had an indoor football season. I think I can't remember where it was seven or eight aside, but like Rob said, the facilities over there were were put in place for that because they did have harder winters. Yeah. You know, yeah. we could be we could have two feet of snow for two months at a time when I lived in Germany, um, but it it was just a, a, a scaled down version of football. The, 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 we still used the size five ball. Yeah. But, okay. uh, it was really popular. You'd get a lot of people who, who would come to watch. I think that's I think that's something that people need to think about. I really think that the FA needs to think about that from a from a facilities to enable you know and, and, and to to you know provide opportunities to continue to play. I think it's really important. Okay, let's talk quickly about the money in football and the redistribution of wealth. Right, I think we're probably all of a mindset that there's probably you know more money than we'd ideally like to see go into agents' pockets and go into probably top players' pockets as opposed to at the other end of the scale where young kids don't have facilities to play football. 
Um, but at the moment, with COVID, um, and there's clearly going to be an impact with the, the loss of the mentor system, the lot of the changes, some of the coaching courses that are going online. There's going to be an impact on the quality of the experience. You know, what, what, what are your thoughts on the finances and what needs to be done? I mean, you, you, Rob, you talked, you made a great point before. I, I've long since felt that the German system is something that I would absolutely love to see or what, what the German reality of basically sticking two fingers up to the commercial demands of clubs and looking at things from the greater good and distributing the wealth in a more democratic way, quite frankly, or, or you know, you know, so it's, almost, it's almost like a social, you know, you know, a left wing policy, to be honest, but on, on this one, I'm absolutely bang up, you know, I, I feel like that's really the right way to go. But what, what do you both think about that? Well, I think one of the biggest differences, um, you compare the German system to ours, for example, is they've got the 51% rule on club ownership. So nobody's allowed to own more than 51% of any club. So yeah. that, uh, um, that makes the club system a much more uh, democratic one, I guess. You've got no... You've got no oligarch owners over there that, or, you know, like the Glazers at Man United, for example, and you look at the money that, um, that A, it costs, B, it brings in, and C, they've taken out. In Germany, that's, that's a completely different system. So they're still able to attract um, big sponsorship deals and everything. The, only, the other difference, of course, over there is that they've only got two professional leagues as such. You know, we, we support a pyramid that's, uh, 92 full-time clubs, more than that now because the majority of the conference, and you've even got, there's, well, there's at least one club that I know of where I've worked before, who are full-time at... More, more, yeah, more, more than there's more, there's more, in the conference north and south, there'll be seven or eight clubs at least so, at the time. The, in terms of, yeah, it'd be great to see the money equally distributed, but then it becomes more of a, a moral argument than a business argument. You, you start to drag in the, the equal pay argument between women's football and men's football. And the pressure that was put on certain Premier League clubs to run women's teams, and the, they were then parachuted into, into the top league at their level with no history. So I think that it, I think it's a really difficult one. I can't pretend that I'm ever going to know the answer to no. what to do with money in football. I think there was meant to be some announcement today, but if there was, I've missed it. I've not really... Yeah, uh, the, the conference clubs, the conference step six clubs, they're going to start on Saturday and the government is going to subsidise them to, the, I think, to the extent of like 20 million, 20 million? Yeah, to, 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 to you know, basically allow them to continue to play football and to continue to operate with fairly similar budgets. I mean, if it's freebie, if it's a freebie, then it's great for the clubs. Yeah, I think there needs to be a lot of scrutiny on how they spend it. Yeah, that's my that was my understanding of it. I'm, I'm you know, the, the disclaimer on that is I've I've only I've only read one thing and skimmed it, but yeah, yeah. I, I agree with you as well because if some of them are paying out you know sky high wages that that, that might have near bankrupt the club even if they had had got in a full full gate, then um, yeah, you'd have to question it. But. Yeah, they're talking about the average gate. Right. They're not losing out massively, um, so it doesn't really allow them just to pay lots of big bucks out to players that may get them success. Um, my, my experience 
and it's an interesting one because being basically employed by the local council, then the FA, but still working for the local council. When I went to Newcastle United to work in the foundation, and I got to see from the inside the FA Premier League and the shed loads of money that they would give to foundations and a lot of money used for Premier League for sport, which was basketball, table tennis, volleyball, judo. And you thought, well, that's a lot of money and lots of initiatives that clubs just will get staff. I remember talking to the guy at West Brom at one of the meetings down at, in London at the Premier League. In West Brom, we're getting relegated. He said, I can't wait. He says, because then I can't, I don't have to do all these new initiatives. He says, because I kind of keep up with it. But that money just seems to stay in one area. It doesn't go on the grassroots as such. Yeah. We'll have the Premier League girls' tournament and boys' tournament that's played at Man United at the end of the season at Aston Villa. But there's not a lot goes out from that, from that small pot. And then you've got the likes of clubs lower down the leagues trying to be something that they can't. And even in non-league, you get somebody coming in, a couple of clubs near to me, they tend to get the FA Vols final because the level they're at. And it's yeah. just a chairman or an owner wants his day at Wembley putting loads of money in. But it's it's a short-term fix. You know, it's not there's nothing really long-term. So I think that the government could do a hell of a lot more. We don't, you know, even just on facilities and understanding how much it gives people regarding exercise, well being, mental health, the whole lot. But it just seems to be run by volunteers once you get below, as you said, the conference and places like that. And volunteers are dying out, not yeah. only going the wall because nobody wants to be a volunteer. These old guys are, are just doing, doing other stuff, you know. Um, but I think that. Really, really, really good insight because, you know, I, I, I'm probably guilty of smashing the Premier League and the Premier League clubs over the head um, because they don't do enough. But I don't see what you've seen at Newcastle, for example. But there was, there was a big gap, and I'm not speaking out of the school here, between the Premier League and the FA. Yeah. Seeing it now, that what's happened, there's been no help offered um, to all of the staff that's been laid off at the FA, top staff that have been there for a lot of years, and any sort of res rescue package could have easily been sent across. But that's, you know, a lot of it's historical. But we'll yeah. go. I think I think there's one thing, you know, we touched on it just briefly there, with the women's game, the growth and the popularity of the women's game, and more so in the um, participation in women's football, is something that goes under the radar. Often people say, well, should Alex Scott be presenting over Matt Letitia or you know, or, or you know, is a women's Premier League a product for people that football fans really want to watch? Well, let's forget all that for a minute and just think about all of all the young girls who have been out exercise. You just talked about it: well-being, mental health, physical health, and some massive social kind of learning journey that they've been on through football. And that wouldn't have happened 20 or 30 years ago. And I think ultimately that that is a that is a big benefit of some of the stuff that we perhaps we don't always give credit to. Yeah, 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 hundred percent. But uh, and again, I think when people do start, and this is generally people outside of football, start criticising the money that's in football, they they need a realistic 
idea of where that money is. It's not in the football league, certainly not at League One and League Two and conference level. The Premier yeah. League, the Premier League is its own beast. It has become this massive conglomerate that actually, I think that if they were to tell the FA that they were going to play fifteen aside um, with a with three balls on the pitch next week, that's what the Premier League would become, and the mm-hmm. FA would no say in it. Mm-hmm. They're two completely different beasts now. Yeah, uh, yeah. People need to keep that um, that separation in mind when they do start criticising the FA particularly, because the FA isn't the big rich cash cow that people think it is. The Premier League is. Yes. I'm not saying that the FA are paupers by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah. And if people are going to question things like, well, where does our fine money go? All that, those types of questions. I think that they're genuine questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think what what I have an issue with is the transparency, um, the accountability, and also the communication and clarity, clarity, which is I guess transparency as well. You know, I look at the PFA and the, the salary that Gordon Taylor has been paid for goodness knows how long. You know, I mean, I, I know that's only a drop in the ocean, a couple of million quid, but it's not only a drop in the ocean if you consider what that could, money could do or some of that money could do, and that's coming out of professional play and. I'm not sure how accountable he is. Now, I'm, I'm going in on him a little bit because I have a bit of a bee in my bonnet about that. But the same is true of, of the FA. The, the FA is not transparent enough and isn't, you know, like the, the recent news about the, you know, the, the reductions, the cuts, you know, the, the coach my mentoring system, et cetera, et cetera. It, you know, what, what a soap opera that was in terms of communication. I mean, if, if I'm the head of, head of communications of the FA or I'm chief exec or whatever, and that gets out there. The minute it gets out there, well, unless you've got something to hide, you should be communicating. Because there's so many, you know, so many people affected by that. It was jobs, you know, all the way through to the kids who are being coached themselves. You have a responsibility, and that accountability I don't see in the organisations. And I mean, you know, look, we, we, we're getting under a slightly different subject there in terms of, you know, best practice in organisations and you know leadership and management structure and stuff. But. Not not overly overly happy with that to be honest. But um, final final thing then. Let's 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 move on to sort of wrapping this up a little bit. Um, what what do you two think? Slightly, you know, with, with the angle that you know we're going to be left with some holes after this experience, after COVID, and we don't know how long that's going to go on for and what the full impact is going to be. But we know we're going to be left with some holes. And um, what do we do to continue the good work? I think personally, uh, and it's in our DNA, the likes of myself and Tony and lots of people, and funny Gordon Stanley has gone back to run the under 12. Uh, yeah, I saw that today, brilliant. We, we don't just walk away, we won't, because that's what you do, and we'll help people. Just the fact we ain't got a tracksuit and getting paid X amount per hour, it's what you do, and I think we've really got to galvanise and push on and not worry too much. I mean, I've, I've seen, yeah, about four, every 10 years at the FA, things change. A whole new raft of people coming in, the other people move out, and it gets dumbed down, and it gets more towards diversity and this and the other. But what I have noticed, KPIs need a hell of a lot. Again, mm. the number crunching means a hell of a lot to sit in front of somebody and go, right, why do we need to get rid of all these coaches? Well, it won't really affect the leagues. It won't affect the amount of people playing. Right, okay, Sunday football's died on its horse. And I've got an idea, let's do walking football. So 
there's a cynical side to that, but it is about numbers because when you grow and develop, if you stop growing and developing and bringing numbers in, it looks like you're failing. But we as individuals have to help people, have to support people and not lose sight of why we got involved in the game in the first place. And the enthusiasm um, has to go. It has to keep happening. Will it be a different place? Of course it will be. But it might take six months. But the, the, the game, I used to have this discussion with Peter Beardsley because he sat in the next desk to me. It's four jumpers and a ball. It's, you know, there's fancy tractors, there's plastic pitches, and there's Monday night football and tactics boards. But what got us involved in playing football should always be there for young kids. Yeah. I think we've, got to, we've just got to keep pushing that as well and promoting all the good stuff and, and getting people to find a mentor, take control of their own CPD. Because some people will be going, good, I don't need any CPD. In fact, I didn't want a level one, but have to get onto Twitter, follow Tony, get onto Facebook and look at stuff and take the best bits that they need. Yeah. And, yeah. As you said, there's so much stuff on YouTube, bloody hell, you don't need all that. You just need to get out there and keep it keep it going, keep yeah. it going, you know. Yeah. Totally. I think there's I think that for me there's there's probably there's there's two ways that this'll this'll pan out now. So people like us who've got a genuine interest, a genuine love of the game, will will carry on doing what we do, sharing content, speaking to people, mentoring, whether it's formally or informally. Yeah. The danger and what I wouldn't like to see is that people capitalise on it, which has happened a little bit post-COVID with the one-to-one -one stuff. Yeah. There's all the bandits turning up with one-to-one -one companies um, and charging a fortune for, for not very much. People want to pay it, then that's up to them. I wouldn't people, you know, if, if Rob was going to set up a private mentoring company, then as, because I know Rob and I know Rob's reputation, I know it's going to be run right. Um, but I think that there's a danger now that a lot of these type of things will spring up and there'll be, there'll be the wrong motivation behind it. It'll be people who want to make money out of it whilst pretending to support coaches who really need support. Um, one of the first things that I did when I went back to work um, after being furloughed was the academy manager and speak to our head of HR and say, right, when we had club CPD, which would normally be an in-house thing, we need to find a system where we invite in, say, 25 local coaches, or we open, if it's, if, if it's big enough, we open up to everybody. So. We're not hiding what we do. I've never hidden what I do at any club in terms of syllabus, sessions, anything else. You want to come and watch? If I'm in charge, you can come and watch. If I'm not in charge, I'll ask if you can come and watch. But so one of the things that we're looking to do uh, at our club is is open up our CPD to local grassroots teams. Um, whether we form a relationship with them off the back of that, I've spoken enough in the past about um, the partner club scheme that I wanted to run when I was at York City, which didn't really get a lot of um, a lot of traction. But I think a lot of clubs could go down that route. And I think Rob mentioned it earlier on. Now, they, they might not want to. And I know that Man United do it really well with local grassroots clubs. Um, 
we're so we you know we're not Man United and, and we haven't got the resources to do anything massive. But if we're going to put on a coaching event for our coaches in house, then why not open it up? We're not yeah. trying to hide anything. There's no secrets. And yeah. I said I said this to um, to a uh, I did a Facebook live. I think it was the last one that I did um, before. But I said those that know what they're talking about, those that know what they're doing, lend yourself to the game. Yeah, play it forward, play it forward. Yeah, yeah. because because you know that like, you know I could, I think I could probably put a map up and put fifteen or twenty people who you could you could form an unofficial mentoring leadership group, and you two would be in it, obviously. And for me, what that group could do for football, and if it was measured. Would be would be phenomenal. Now the reality is, you're doing ninety percent of that already because you are the people you are, and likewise some of your peers and some of the people that I would I would you know, the other people that I would look around the country at. Um, so it it's you know it's tough. You, I mean you talk about you go back to the grassroots before. You said about the forty teams, Rob, before and the money and you know if you've got consistency and, and you say, right, well, grassroots football clubs need to be set up for, for the first, for one primary reason, that's to give kids the opportunity to get out and play football. And yeah. if that's the first thing that you try and do, we can't be that far out wrong, can we? You know, you might have different types of coaches, mm -hmm. but you get the kids interested in enjoying football and you make that experience fun and you, you make them associate that period of time playing football in that club with some of the happiest times in their life. The game ain't going to be too bad in the future, even if we don't have everything that we've, we've, we've come accustomed to in the last 10 years. We'll see. Right, I'm going to wrap it up there, fellas, because we're an hour and 20 in. Um, suffice to say, um, I absolutely love talking football with a pair of you, so thank you so much. Um, I hope people, thank you. I, I, hope, I, I hope a lot of people enjoy listening to this. We've covered a lot, actually. We've gone in on some some fairly serious stuff there, some fairly meaty topics. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how people people receive it. But um, yeah, listen, thank you for your time. You're busy men. Um, what you're going to be spending your time doing moving forward, I'm sure will be aligned with that last part of the conversation. Um, so yeah, just keep fighting a good fight. And thanks once again. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Tony. All the best. Ta-da. Pleasure. All right.